how would the world be a different place? It may have, everything may have unfolded in the same way. It may not have. And this is where, if you look at most of the stuff that's going on in the world, from the protests and riots, international, everything is based on trauma. Yeah. Now, one of the things I like to think about is in the not too distant future, within five or six years, hopefully, there's going to be clinics everywhere. And a kid in New York City who's going to get beaten tonight by his parents is going to be able to heal and go to college. And, you know, they might get a law degree. And then they go and, and they run for Congress. And then they become president or they become prime minister or they become whatever. And when the people who are making these decisions in society are making those decisions based on the facts in front of them rather than pre-existing trauma, you can remove a lot of the chaos and harm. Welcome back or welcome to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Fitting Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience, and we challenge ourselves and others to think, question, and synthesize wherever our curiosity takes us. It is through conversations like what you're about to hear that we provide blueprints for others to learn and lead a more fulfilling life. And without further ado, let's introduce today's guest. My guest today is Jonathan Lubecki. He served in the United States Marine Corps as a KC-130 loadmaster from 1995 to 1999. Following the tragedy on 9-11, Jonathan joined the North Carolina National Guard. Upon returning home, Jonathan started experiencing nightmares and flashbacks. He developed crippling PTSD, which was complicated by his hand trauma. His PTSD culminated in five suicide attempts that should have been successful. His first attempt was on December 25, 2006, less than three months after returning home. Jonathan was medically retired from the United States Army on December 9th, 2009. His final attempt was on November 4th, 2013. After his final suicide attempt, with nothing left to lose, he enrolled in experimental MDMA therapy. The treatment eliminated his suicidal ideation, reduced his PTSD by 50%, and his depression by 70%. Currently, Jonathan is the MAPS veteran and government affairs liaison. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Founded in 1986, MAPS is a nonprofit research and educational organization that develops medical, legal, and cultural context for people to benefit from the careful uses of psychedelics and marijuana. Currently, you can support MAPS and help people like Jonathan through MAPS's Capstone Project. MAPS has until September 10th to raise $10 million to unlock a total of $30 million in funding to complete studies required for FDA approval of MDMA in assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder and bring much-needed treatment to patients. I cannot understate how important this conversation is for me. I've spent a lot of my time over the last couple of years reading more and more about the benefits of psychedelic-assisted therapy. And in that time, I have listened to many conversations with the founder of MAPS, Rick Doblin, and podcasts, Tim Ferriss, and others who are supporting this research. I was first exposed to Jonathan's story through a podcast with Rick Doblin that kicked off the MAPS Capstone Project. They cover part of Jonathan's story and mention a economist video on PTSD and veterans and how the treatment of MDMA helped Jonathan in 
a seven minute video. It's nothing short of powerful. I watched that and I heard Jonathan mentioned in other contexts around psychedelic therapy and I couldn't help but reach out to him. I, I just wanted to hear more of it for my own. By doing so, I, I'm now able to help a organization get the word out on and help more people, hopefully, to go from someone who just reads and listens to how these therapies help people to now being able to talk to someone and then hopefully amplify the message is incredibly meaningful for me. I hope all of you enjoy this podcast and I hope you take something away from it. And at the very least, go and check out the videos, check out maps, the work behind maps and the proving the efficacy with science is incredibly important for me. And I really think that by funding science like this, we can provide more tools for people to live better lives. Please enjoy this conversation. Welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm joined by Jonathan Lubecki. Hi, Jonathan. How's it going? Pretty good. I'm really glad you're here. Talk to someone who's not only been a part of MAPS, but also served in the military. I've done so much reading and exploring around the research of MAPS and just broadly how that research affects people, that to actually talk to someone who's been directly affected by it is really special for me. It's weird to be a part of it when you read it in a book and then actually be talking to someone in person is really fun, or at least through the internet. I'll be honest, it's really weird for me because I'm just a regular vet. I didn't do anything super spectacular or anything. Mm -hmm. and, and I came into psychedelics in a very different way than a lot of people. I knew nothing when I got into it. Mm -hmm. And now, like, I'm friends with Rick Doblin and all and, and all these people that are movers and shakers in the movement. And it, it's bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I bet. It's really interesting for me because I've, I feel like I've been a fly on the wall, especially someone who's younger. And I'm an engineer by training, so it's even more interesting for me just to be associated by just being interested in the broader effects that this can do to help people and to just see how it how the stories. For me, it's like, how do the micro stories inform the macro picture, basically? And so I think the best place to start is just with your military career. Like, how did you, what was life before you got associated with all of this, basically? I just have a bizarre life. Um, this whole podcast will illustrate that. I shipped for Marine Corps boot camp nine days, I think, after I graduated from high school. Did delayed entry program my entire senior year. Joined the Marine Corps. Was a loadmaster on C-130s and C-9s, lived in Japan for a year, visited a bunch of different countries, flew with a lot of really awesome people. One of them actually was one of the people who was killed on Yankee 72 when it went down in 2017, which the good thing about that is I've reached out to people that I served with 20 years ago in the Marine Corps mm -hmm. and started to rekindle those you know friendships, which has been a good thing. Then I got out. Uh, I met a girl like many people do, and I realized me flying all the time was not conducive to a good marriage, so I got out and was married, and then I watched the towers fall. And so in March 2003, I joined the North Carolina National Guard. Joined an artillery unit, although the real reason I joined was to do warrant officer flight training. Went through selection and all of that, but ended up getting deployed first. 
my unit, we are an artillery unit that got trained as a truck unit, transportation unit when we got there. A bunch of guys did gun trucks. We all got scattered to all these different jobs. I was a designated marksman at the access control point for a while. I worked towers. I have an AFES patch because I, I, I did guard duty at the PX. Mm-hmm. Did just a bunch of different stuff. But we were stationed, at, we were based out of LSA, Anaconda, Bulat Air Base. Got mortared like 6,000 times. It was insane. I don't have this like super cool military career. And it's funny because a lot of people I deal with on the psychedelic side and on the veteran side, the Rangers and Navy SEALs and all this stuff. And like, I was just an artilleryman who who went to Iraq. We, and I think that's a good thing to learn. Yeah. There's guys in my unit that have severe PTSD that never stepped foot outside the wire just because we got mortared constantly. There's other people I've talked to in Iraq who they were in Kuwait and they have PTSD because military sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. There's so many different ways to get PTSD. And I think as veterans, we have a habit of judging each other that we really need to drop mm-hmm. because I know that male veterans who, who were raped in Iraq and they have severe PTSD from it. And they get shit all the time. You didn't go outside the wire. What the hell? Theory with everyone, whether veteran or not, has been, I don't judge other people's trauma. Yeah. I I, I think you're really, I seriously think you're hitting on something really. We need to just get past that. I think because we hold ourselves to a standard that I don't think almost anybody can, unless you're not human to some degree. Don't get past, but realize when it comes to, to the whole toughness argument, I know Navy SEALs who have severe PTSD, Rangers, SF, all the operators, tier one operators, a lot of them have PTSD. It it has nothing to do with your job. It has nothing to do with how strong or how weak you are. Because, look, PTSD is simply you experience a trauma that is so impactful for whatever reason that it alters brain chemistry. Yeah. And part of this is it's the entirety of your life experience. That's why you can have three guys all experience the same thing. And one or two might get PTSD and one or two may not. Mm -hmm. We don't know enough about what other than trauma, what causes it and why some people get it and some people don't. And interestingly enough, since I've gone through MDMA therapy, I've experienced significant trauma akin to Iraq and I still don't have PTSD. So I'm still one person. Why I got it the first time and haven't gotten it since, other than I did MDMA and I look at mental health differently, it's not genetic. It's not, it just is. There's general officers with PTSD. It it does not discriminate based on rank or MOS, gender, none of it. I I like to think of just stress in general, which to me... PTSD is like redlining your tolerance where you just have too much of an input or for too sustained a period of time. And some people just have a larger container that they can take before it breaks and other people just don't. And you can't compare apples to oranges because each one of us is unique in that sense, whatever that stress threshold may be. And for me, the question I would think of is, did you know that was going to be a thing while you were in the military, or is it just because that's like the environment you're in, you just deal with it until you get back home, or you don't realize um, it until you get back home? So the interesting thing is a lot of the 
except for like nightmares and stuff like that. A lot of the symptoms like hypervigilance and, 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 and avoidance and lack of trust and things like that, they keep you alive in a combat zone. Part of my job was working at the front gate and we were in, and I also worked with local nationals. And so those kind of things keep you safe. And then you come home and my homecoming was a country song. So it gets worse. It, yeah. it does because rolling off, having an instinctual reaction to roll off your rack when mortars come in is a good thing. When that happens and you're in Sanford, North Carolina and nothing's going on, that becomes a problem. So it, you don't really notice it until you get back. When it actually happens, I don't know. They knew something was wrong with me beforehand while I was there because I also have a head injury, which doesn't oh, help Oh, okay. That makes more sense too because that's just going to exasperate some of these symptoms in general. The, the other thing it reminds you of is similar to how people respond in traumatic situations or just life or death situations, it doesn't really have to be traumatic, where I'm pulling on Sebastian Younger's book, The Tribe, where he talks about how people in the military, they form bonds with each other that are deeper than the average person because you're counting on the people around you to be there in those moments where it might be life or death. And so when you get pulled back into normal society, where in at least in the United States, it's way more individualistic and you're stuck working eight hours a day at the very least, or just not having a tight knit support system around you. And I think you can, depending on the situation, but on average, I don't think it's really there. Like that sense of community and helping people find their footing to reenter like average life. And, and this is where today's vets have some distinct advantages and disadvantages. One of the big advantages is sitting here on my computer, my phone, my tablet, I can message call interact with the guys I served with, regardless of where they live. I live in South Carolina. A lot of the guys I served with still live in North Carolina. And that's a good thing. It's also bad because you have a tendency to hole up in your house because you can interact without actually leaving. So uh. then you're just interacting with the people you want to. And I, I tended to do that when I had PTSD, sometimes not even realizing. Was it like a sense of safety to just to reach out to the people you were comfortable with reaching out to that were either like they're with you or just comfortable with? I knew they wouldn't screw with me. They, we'd been through the same stuff and they were friends and, mm -hmm. and they're friends with such a shared experience. I'd call people and we wouldn't talk about Iraq or anything like that. We just talk yeah. and bullshit about the day and vent about whatever happened that day. And I had weekly therapy and lots, lots, lots of medications. Mm -hmm. So for you, was it weird? Cause I've had people who've been in the military that are friends of mine that didn't get deployed really. And then they have people like thanking them or like giving them praise for something that they feel like they didn't earn. And I'm sure for you, it would feel almost just as different in a, in a different sense to be praised. Yeah. I, I don't like as much as I'm like on the news and stuff. I hate being in the spotlight and I, I it's funny. I hate when people thank me for my service, mm -hmm. but I do notice when politicians don't, which is funny. In, in part because, I don't know, it, it makes you feel weird. Yeah. I got a buddy who's missing a leg. Are you thanking me because I didn't lose my leg? When you start to, when you have PTSD, it's like, are you thanking me for going over and getting PTSD? Gee, I would have much rather not gone. Yeah. Um, it, it 
the thing about thanking a vet for their services, it's not for the vet, it's for the person thanking them. So they feel like they actually did something to help a vet. So they don't have to, you know, it's the same as spending two bucks on a yellow ribbon magnet and putting it on the back of your car. Are you going and working at a food bank? Are you actually answering the, the phone when a veteran calls in distress? Are you giving them a job? Are you looking past the fact that they haven't worked in three years because they've been trying to get their head on straight? Those are things people could do to actually thank veterans. Instead, it's much easier to just say thank you for your service and feel good about yourself, even though you actually probably made that vet feel bad or at least uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because it's, I think us as people, we overlay our own experiences on others more quickly than to actually think about that other person's experience or at least pause first. And let me just listen to this person's story first and, and before I make a judgment about who they are. We, we look at the labels of people. We think veterans so that immediately means, like you said, the yellow ribbons and things like that for some people. Here's the other thing that's weird is... I'm in a weird position not having PTSD, but remembering having PTSD. Mm-hmm. If some random person walks up to me to thank me for my service, that's going to freak me out because I don't know who you are and you need to just stay out of my space. But they insist. So it's all right, fine. Yeah, I'll shake your hand. Awesome. Now just leave me alone. <laughs> and and yeah. everybody wants to do it. Mm-hmm. So we just suck it up and drive on. But it, it does have a lot of different implications that people don't think about. Yeah. I actually didn't even think about that myself. It's, it almost is like when you see someone who has like a a deformity or or some sort of uh, handicap and people are trying not to pay attention to you. They're obviously paying attention to that person on the other side of the room and trying to be subtle about it. But in doing that, they're not being subtle. And it like the point you're making is that someone with PTSD already is on heightened alert to threats. And especially when a stranger is coming up to you, with excitement and intensity can be very closely linked, at least emotionally. So they can trigger the same sort of response from someone who's looking for those heightened levels of emotion, which is going to send off all sorts of alarms, which I didn't even consider until right now, which isn't pretty, that's, I don't even know. Would you, what would you recommend for someone to Well, and that's what I've always asked. And that's what I, I, I legitimately <laughs> don't have an answer to. It is what the alternative is. Cause I don't know what the alternative is. Yeah. Part of it honestly is there's a right time and place. Mm-hmm. If I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family and I came from a funeral or an event and I happen to be in uniform. Okay. Don't interrupt my meal. So yeah. you can thank me for my service. And, and that's one of the other things I, I think I don't have an alternative other than be mindful of, uh, of what's appropriate in the time and place. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's similar to treating how you would treat celebrities in, in that sense. Or just remembering that people are people. Like, no matter what status they may hold, is just they're st- they still have lives and they're not always supposed to be, like, on, so to speak. And think about this. For a veteran or someone in the military, it's also different. If you're... A celebrity, pick any celebrity, like Ryan Reynolds. If you're Ryan Reynolds and you go to a restaurant, even if they let you eat, you're going to be signing autographs. You're going to be taking pictures. With someone in the military, you're just Sergeant John. That's it. And so people come up and treat you like a celebrity and you're not prepared for it. 
Yeah. And that's another big difference. And it's because they want to thank the army for its service. And I happen to be that representative. Yeah. It's, but I don't have another solution. Yeah. It's much better than people hating the military. Mm -hmm. And I switch gears here, but for transitioning outside of the military, but like into like normal working, how, what was that like for you? Because it has to be stressful. I just don't know how, like no transition is ever easy. And I feel like coming out of combat and re-entering the workforce is its own can of worms. It's funny because being over, one of the reasons why like a lot of vets say they want to go back is life is so much easier over there. It really is because you don't have to worry about what you wear, what you're going to eat. Everything is structured. And and so all you got to do is worry about staying alive and keep your buddies alive. Mm -hmm. That's all you have to worry about. When you come home, you got to pay bills. You got to do all these other things. So for me, yeah, I said me coming home was a country song. So my now ex-wife left about two weeks before I came home from Iraq, moved in with a lieutenant colonel. I found out when no one met the airplane. Watched everyone in my unit go to someone, a parent or a kid or a friend, somebody. And there was no one to meet the airplane. So I walked out in the rain, turned my cell phone back on, tried to call, no answer. So when we are finally released after like turning weapons, doing all the crazy stuff we got to do, they're like, all right, everybody come back in four days. And we got on a plane in Iraq and then changed planes in Kuwait and then came home. It was like 36 hours from Iraq getting mortared to being in a bar in Raleigh, North Carolina. Wow. The military's done a lot to change that. But so I took a taxi to my house. It was empty. She took my dog, sold my car. Yeah. So while I was still in uniform, I went to my boss because I was in National Guard. So I left the job. So I was coming back and I came, went and I was like, I'm back. They're like, when'd you get back? It was like a couple hours ago. Like, Why are you here? <laughs> like, honestly, I don't know where else to go. I don't know what to do. Yeah. So I went home, didn't want to stay there. So I went and got a hotel room, sat in the shower for four hours trying to get all the dirt off me. And I went to a bar in Raleigh, got shit hammered. That's in, yeah, no kidding about the country song part. It's incredible because one is probably a testament to just how much work you've done to just put that in its own place. Because I don't know if that was me, I'd probably still be pissed off to this day. <laughs> to well, and here's the funny thing: it's hilarious when you're over there. Everybody thinks that we're talking about sleeping with women and all this other stuff. Yeah. No, honestly, we at least in my unit, we spend a lot of time talking about food. Um, like this is the meal I'm gonna have, the first meal I have when I get home. And I had this whole meal picked out at this restaurant. So uh, on the way to the bar, I go to the restaurant. I'm like, all right, I was waiting for my dog to jump up on me. My mm-hmm. dog's gone. I was waiting for my wife. She's gone. Like everything, my motorcycle was gone. Like everything. And I'm like, I can at least get this one meal. And the restaurant was closed. Oh like permanently. <laughs> oh, my um, God. They even, all right, they even tore down the exit that I got off the freeway on to get to my house and built a new one, like a mile down the road. So everything changed while I was in Iraq. Yeah. It, 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 it was insanity. And then we went back, did like a week or two of briefs and then they're like, all right, you guys are good to go. So I went back to work and yeah, it, it's weird between drinking, distress, everything. 
But within 60 days of coming home, I put a load of Beretta 9 millimeter in my temple and pulled the trigger. Done that twice. Tried to OD, slipped my wrist twice. Then I found MDMA. I was going to say, just from that alone, and that was the start of one of the videos I'd watched that was recommended with The Economist, I think it was, and that video itself doesn't pull any punches, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's the point of all of this is we're not dealing with, like, soft things or whatever. We're dealing with life or death here, and people like yourself who leave to serve a country and you're left with nothing. But here's the other thing. Yeah. Yes, veterans are, are a lot of the face of this because we voluntarily put ourselves in, in, in harm's way and we endure that trauma and we come back with PTSD. But it's equally horrible for domestic violence survivors, rape victims, victims of, of various sexual and physical assaults, car accidents, as many people as there are traumas that can cause PTSD. Mm -hmm. And honestly, military are better prepared to deal with it, in part because we know what's coming. Whereas all, a lot of these other people who have PTSD within society don't have the support networks, good or bad, that the military and the VA provide. And they've gotten so much better over the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have access to that. They don't have the camaraderie of the guys they served with. They don't have all of that. And, and frequently they're forgotten because veterans have a better quote unquote story than a girl who went to prom and got raped. Yeah. Doesn't mean she hasn't tried to kill herself. It doesn't mean she hasn't gone through the same kind of suffering as I did. The, the trauma was different and, and I'd never compare the two, but I, I don't like saying it, it's worse for vets. It's actually mm -hmm. better in some cases because we, we expect it and we have support networks. The VA spent a crap ton of money to try and make me better. Now, their hands are tied with laws and things like that, but it doesn't mean they didn't want to help. And they spent a lot of money, a considerable amount of money, every year to try and make me better. I didn't pay a dime. Whereas a domestic violence survivor, a rape victim, car accident victim, they better be able to hold on to a job and have health insurance to be able to cover that cost. Mm -hmm. And if they can't, then they're just thrown to the wolves. I'm so glad you brought that up because part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because I, I really truly see what things like maps is doing in, in your story as a first line of if this gets approved or, or if we can prove that this actually does help people, it will get to other people that actually can use this too, like all of the people you've named here. And I, and it, like you said, it's not worth comparing it or you shouldn't compare it because trauma is trauma at the end of the day. And we should just try to help people live a life that they can or that they should be able to. Because how many people who've experienced trauma that couldn't either cope with it or work through it that couldn't feel like live a meaningful life after that? And that's where I really go with all this is trying to just help people feel like they can live the life that they wanted to at the end of the day. I feel like people don't like, we all want to feel value in some way and to feel like we can't do anything about it. Like that just helplessness is, is wrong. And this is where the hopelessness and helplessness that comes with PTSD 
is in part because we as a society have lied to ourselves and said that PTSD is a chronic lifelong illness, that we can manage symptoms, but this is your new normal, when in fact it is a mental injury like any physical injury that can be healed in a matter of months. Mm -hmm. We can heal PTSD like a broken bone in four months. And that shift in thinking that it's a mental injury and that there's a treatment and it's effective and it goes away will shift the stigma on mental illness. We don't talk about curing mental illness. We don't talk about healing it. We talk about lessening the symptoms, lessening the impact on the life. No, that's bullshit. It's a mental injury. We can heal it. And everyone should be given the opportunity to heal. And, And what the current treatments do is it's if you get shot in the arm, instead of taking care of the gunshot wound, we're just going to wipe the blood away every day and hope it gets better. And, and, you get used to the pain and sometimes somebody will stick a finger in it and stuff and make it worse. Why don't we just stitch up the hole, wipe away the blood and then carry on. I went through the MDMA therapy. I finished it in March of 2015. Mm -hmm. I haven't done MDMA since. And since then in, let's see, July of 2018, I had a guy drown in the lake behind my house, went into the water, pulled him out. Mm-hmm. Did CPR, but he was under for too long. And then August of 2019, I had a guy walked out of the bar. Uh, I walked out of a bar to get a battery pack out of my car, and a guy was shot in the chest. I tried to save him. He got shot through the whole area, so there was no saving him. I only say this because, like, both of them died. I tried to save both of them. It wasn't my fault. I did the medical stuff. And then my son, actually, I thought he died in my arms on a cruise ship over Christmas. I I still don't have PTSD, in part because right after these events, I immediately reached out to my therapist and talked about it and dealt with it and processed all of it. And I'm not going to say that stuff didn't suck. I'm not going to say I didn't have nightmares and I didn't have intrusive thoughts and hypervigilance and and the PTSD-type stuff, but... After about a week or two, it had dissipated and gone away. Because realize, you can't really diagnose someone with PTSD until 30 days after the trauma because a lot of PTSD is how the body naturally processes trauma. And, and so what ha- something happens and it sticks in the on position, if you're in a bad car accident, you're probably going to have nightmares. Then. I bet. And I think this is a good point to just talk about how you got exposed to MDMA or what you... Like, what did you even know about it even before you were exposed to it? And then second, like, just what that whole process was like. Because even in my age group, most of us still even think about it as just a party drug, ecstasy, as MDMA is called. And I do a lot of, I've done so much homework in trying to understand this stuff and talk about it in an intelligent way and not talk about it as a using it respectfully and treat it like a medicine and not treating it like this... Look, I'm not going to say that it's – I don't understand why people take it recreationally. It's the same reason people use cannabis recreationally mm-hmm. and other drugs. Just because people use it recreationally doesn't mean it can't be a medicine at the same time. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, one of the things MAPS has is a thing called the Zendo Project, which is peer-to-peer psychedelic support. Oh, cool. So that when somebody has – because this actually happens more than you'd think where somebody will take MDMA at at a rave or a party or what have you. And it brings up trauma. They didn't 
realize they were dealing with. Yeah. There's no one there to talk to them about. And so by suppressing that, it can actually make everything worse. So Zendo, they have someone to go to talk about it who has specialized training and other stuff. But as far as how I got involved, after my last suicide attempt, a intern at MUSC was filling in for my shrink. He handed me a piece of paper that said Google MDMA PTSD on it. And I did. And I found out they're doing the trial down the street in Mount Pleasant. And so I called and I went through, they do a, a mental health exam, mm-hmm. cap scoring, as well as a physical exam. It's an FDA trial. And then I got accepted. And then on the wow. weekend, the Saturday before Thanksgiving, 2014, it took my first ever dose of MDMA. Wow. I was on so many SSRIs before that even my friends who had access to it were like, here, you should try it. I was like, nope, this is going to melt my brain. Mm-hmm. And so I, I stayed away from it. I did smoke cannabis for about five years. And I stopped when I moved to South Carolina because my new wife, we have a son. And so she had asked me to stop using cannabis because she was worried about his dad taking him. So I did. And I went on back onto the 42 pills a day they had me on. And within 11 months, I had a suicide. One of the, one of the, in one of the things with the MDMA therapy, that's also fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. SSRIs, benzos, opiates, cannabis, any medication you take works while it's in your system. When, it, when you stop taking it, everything comes back. And this is where it's different. The last time I took MDMA was in May of 2015, over five years ago. I haven't taken it since. I still don't have PTSD. And this is where it's different than everything else in modern medicine, in pretty much any medicine involving mental health. Yes. It's incredible to me that you only take it a, a couple of times, obviously, supported with very specific therapy with two different therapists in the room and and stuff like that, or to contextualize the information in a different way from what I've gathered about it is it it's really assisted so that any sort of the trauma that is experienced or re-experienced can then be recontextualized so that you can be an observer of it rather than reliving it all of the time. That's the goal. Yeah. And it's interesting because in talking with other participants, we tend to fall into one of two categories. Either there's an aha moment where it all clicks or honestly, like me and and for some others, it's more like Drano. Oh, wow. You pour some in and it clears some out. You pour more in, clear some more out, pour more in and it clears it all out. I didn't have an aha moment. But what I was able to do was it's not I didn't take myself out of the situation in in part of the reason I'm trying to be clear on this. We're talking about psychedelics. So so yeah, some psychedelics seeing a purple dragon is a real thing. I didn't float outside my body, but it allowed me to look at things from a different perspective, but that was still my perspective. It was just, I had shifted it to a different perspective. Yeah. You know, blame for one. My friend who lost his leg, I wasn't his truck commander. I originally was. I blame myself. I don't anymore because I didn't plant the bomb. Mm -hmm. And so it's things like that. 
and the, the other kind of interesting thing is when I had PTSD, the nightmares, the memories were all hazy. Everything's much clearer now. Huh. That's but it doesn't have the emotional impact that it did. Yeah, you can see it for what it was as as this is just the past, but it doesn't influence. No, what I mean by clear is I can remember like what the weather was like. I can oh, wow. remember, yeah, like that's very incredible. vivid, <laughs> like very vivid recollections that were very hazy before. Yeah, wow, that's that's really that doesn't happen to everyone, by the way. Okay. I'm just. That's just what I, as a participant, I am speaking entirely of my personal experience. Yeah. That, Unless I say I've talked to other participants and this is what I've been told. That's interesting. I haven't heard stuff like that before. But for me, it's such an interesting idea of like shifting the blame or I don't even know if it's forgiving yourself. But it's like a lot of this this trauma is almost like taking responsibility for things that wasn't in, weren't in your control, especially as a being in a commanding position in the military. We do a lot of training in the military to give commanders the tools they need to deal with those decisions. Mm -hmm. and, and this is where, when I've talked to combat commanders, they've been very interested in MDMA therapy because what we can't train commanders to do is to send guys up a hill knowing half are going to come back. And then three years later, a bunch of that half has taken their own lives. Combat commanders don't know how to deal with that. Yeah. And it's something that, that weighs heavily on them. If it's going up the hill, you can say they took the hill. That was tight. We had to do that. That's how we went, won the war. You can justify the sacrifice. But how do you justify it when they die far from the battlefield, alone at home in the dark? It's not a fun thing at all. And no. in a perfect world, no, that shouldn't happen to anybody. And, and that's why... I, this conversation is really important for me because I think this is, it shines a light on very real things that we don't look at because it's not the glory story or whatever. We remember the stories that we hear about World War II, or, but we don't think about the damage, the long-term damage that plays on people or affects how people come back home and then treat their children or treat their wives or treat whoever. And just being able to develop more tools like this or just diagnose it in a way, even we didn't really even understand what PTSD is until rather recently. It's always existed. As a matter of fact, if you read Homer's Iliad, it's described in oh, really? the Iliad. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> uh, there's a great book called Achilles in Vietnam by Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Shea. Okay. Um, he uses Vietnam veterans and then the Iliad to explain PTSD. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good, it's always existed as part of the human condition, how we have reacted to it. Because think about this. Think about all your old Westerns on TV. And the old drunk on F Troop was an old Confederate soldier. Or an old, the town drunk in the West was always a guy wearing like an old uniform. The reason that stereotype came was because a lot of people had PTSD after the Civil War in the opening up of the old West. And I, one of the things I've found very good and, and it makes me happy is seeing how mainstream media, and I don't mean like CNN, MSNBC, yeah. I'm talking like legends, uh, DC's legends of tomorrow, mm -hmm. NCIS, New Orleans, like, Guyver, like how they have handled 
some of the topics we've talked about. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, one of the just the, the current seasons, NCIS New Orleans, the main character played by Scott Bakula, does psychedelic assisted therapy wow. using LSD. In MacGyver, they do something similar, except they use DMT. And actually, in, in the DC Legends of Tomorrow, they use ayahuasca. They don't call it that, but that's basically what it is. Mm-hmm. But there was also an episode recently where the big mean criminal guy went back into Vietnam and met his dad and realized why his dad was the way he was. In my life, my grandfather was wounded on Guadalcanal. Mm-hmm. And ended up leaving my grandmother and my father when my father was an infant to run away with a nurse in Hawaii. I get it. Being a vet with PTSD, I get it. It's not the right decision, but it does affect everything. Because I know how my dad not having a father in his life growing up, my dad was born in 43, you know, affected him, which in turn affected me. Yeah. I know how I wasn't a great dad when I had PTSD to my stepson. And I know, at least I like to think I'm a much better dad now. It it does impact families. And and I've, and it's interesting because I've talked to a lot of people that I graduated high school with and went to high school with, Mm -hmm. because with that age cohort, you had a lot of parents who were Vietnam vets. And I've talked to some of them about how this has impacted them. It's hard to talk about because people think you're saying they were a bad dad or or a bad mom or what have you. And that's not, it's a matter of one, there's always that moment in a child's life where they realize that their parents are people. And it's not wrong to say, how could things have been better if they had been able to heal? Yeah. I look at history. One of the, one of the, one of the big questions I have in my head is MDMA was invented right around 1920 in Germany. What would have happened if a Corporal Adolf Hitler, when he crawled out of the trenches of World War One, was able to do MDMA therapy? How would the world be a different place? It may have, everything may have unfolded in the same way. It may not have. And this is where, if you look at most of the stuff that's going on in the world from the protests and riots, international, everything is based on trauma. Now, one of the things I like to think about is in the not too distant future, within five or six years, hopefully there's going to be clinics everywhere. And a kid in New York city, who's going to get beaten tonight by his parents is going to be able to heal and go to college and, you know, they might get a law degree and then they go and, and they run for Congress and then they become president or they become prime minister or they become whatever. Yeah. And when the people who are making these decisions in society are making those decisions based on the facts in front of them, rather than pre-existing trauma, you can remove a lot of the chaos and harm. Think about this. Let's talk about something more current events. If you have a a, a black man who grew up and and saw police roughing people up, whether it was justified or not is immaterial because it's his experience of seeing that. Mm -hmm. And then he gets pulled over. He's going to be nervous. He's going to be triggered. And that cop who's been arresting people his whole career 
is also going to be nervous and, and, and triggered. And so you have the person in the car who's shaking and because they're nervous. And then you have a police officer who's taking that to an overreaction. If we give them both MDMA and put them in a room to work it out, I think it'd be a lot better. And that would allow the person in the car to say, you know what, I'm getting pulled over. Maybe it's because my, my tail lights out. And the police officer would be like, I'm pulling somebody over. This is going to be okay. And then everybody goes away happy. And, and that's the world I want for my kid. And that's the world I want, you know, for my kids' kids. Because this is, healing people of trauma is how we can stop a lot of the bad things that have happened. Yeah, it's a powerful way of seeing the world because it's it, the past influences the present it is as much as it shouldn't sometimes, or even if things might seem like one way when in reality, it's not, if it feels like that's the reality, then how can you argue? And for me, it's, I've tried to explain this to some of my friends where when you see if someone from the inner city has this perception of cops being this certain way or even if they maybe have an experience, they always hear stories from family members where this is what you expect from cops from being the little, like at age five before you can understand it. You're setting those behaviors and those responses so that they respond to the worst possible situation, even if it isn't that. And when you have two people interacting and one of them has a gun, it doesn't end well. One of the things prior to it being made illegal that MDMA was used extensively for was couples counseling because it could bring those two people together. And, and so it, it creates love, it creates understanding, it, it creates trust, mutes the fear response in the brain. Now, if two people who are about to get a divorce can come back together with that, imagine what would happen if we like got the Israelis and the Palestinians, <laughs> Vladimir Putin and, and, and Donald <laughs> Trump and Xi Jinping. It, it, the Kurds, Turkey and the Kurds, let's get Erdogan and the head of the Kurds to do MDMA, sit in a room and work this stuff out. This is the world that I see. And, and people ask, because there's a lot of people in the psychedelic movement who are pacifists. I'm not a pacifist. Mm -hmm. I believe that violence is an unfortunate part of the human condition, but it should always be the last resort. And I want to use this healing in, of trauma, of ancient traumas, to help bridge that gap before it turns to violence. Yeah. Be the olive branch. It's, exactly. It's, it's a really important point to make. And, and even my own thoughts haven't really gone as far as to how do you bridge the gap between groups that haven't been able to reconcile. And I think that's a really interesting thing that I, I might actually have to go think about more because it's something, especially even given this time with the, the, the protests and the pandemic and just the heightened, where we're using technology like how we're doing this conversation to have portals to other people where the technology is the intermediary now, where it makes it even harder to see other people's experiences or point of view. And it's so much easier to shout through technology at each other and say, well, here's the way I see it. Instead of we should be asking each other, how do you see this? Because I want to understand your experience. It's tribalism. Yeah. You take anything at all in this country right now, and it's been politicized. The simplest thing, should I wear a mask? And, and if we have people who refuse to come together and, and realize 
I believe in small government in part because the big government's the one that said I couldn't have access to MDMA and, and the medicine I actually need. I, I like low taxes. I also think psychedelics are awesome. I don't care what you do with your life as long as you don't hurt other people. But it's funny, I get called a Nazi and a communist every day. <laughs> because we can't come together. We can't. I go up on Capitol Hill and I tell my story and I talk to senators and congressmen. And one of the things I was really proud of last year was I, I was able to help bring Matt Gates and AOC together on psychedelics. Wow. They're both supported. It's one of the few. There's now actually two things that Matt Gates and AOC agree on. One, that she's not a bitch. And two, psychedelics. And if those two can come together, anybody can come together. We've just got to get part past this. You have to agree with me on everything before I'll even talk to you. Mm -hmm. And this is where things like MDMA really help in those situations. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine if we took Israeli victims of Palestinian violence and Palestinian victims of Israeli violence and, and gave them MDMA and did group therapy? How would that change the world? It's just breaking the cycle of trauma, right? And so it, what you're saying, it really resonates on, on like those levels for me because it makes a lot of sense to try and just get people to, I mean, at the very least, just talk to each other. Because I, I think if we understood, especially in this cultural moment that we have right now, as a young person, it feels really strange because it's you see what's going on and everything's just crazy, and all of the, the people at the top contradict each other. And all I would rather say is have a leader who comes up to the front and says, honestly, we really don't know what the best course of action is right now, but we're trying, and we'd like your input. Something I'll never forget is a few days after 9-11, the whole of Congress, all 535 members, stood on the steps of the Capitol building and saying, God bless America. And that was a very unifying moment for this country. And that's the kind of stuff that we need. The problem is neither side is willing to give an inch, which is frustrating. Yeah. And especially when, you know, MAPS is, while it's huge in the psychedelic world on like, Capitol Hill were one of the smaller entities. And it's frustrating because I see how much MDMA therapy could help COVID patients who've been ventilated, the healthcare workers who've been dealing with COVID, all these things. Heck, every time I see somebody in a YouTube video go nuts, I'm like, MDMA therapy could probably help them. And Sometimes it's frustrating because you've got the stigma attached to it because it's a Schedule One narcotic, and people are like, eh, this isn't really real. It's very real. So it just gets, I don't know, it gets frustrating sometimes, but yeah, it's getting better and better. Yeah. I, it's incredible to see just how much it's shifted in the last even five years. I was someone who, when growing up, I really didn't even register any sort of drug, but for the most part, whenever anyone would ever mention sort of psychedelics, there was still that melt your brain kind of old ideas around it. And then by getting into podcasts and listening to the researchers that really would do the, the first level stuff on these substances and, and start talking about it and talking and not getting into that 
kind of revolutionary bend that it seems to have to some people where it gets like ahead of itself or something like that. Or, to me, it feels like when, when you talk about something that'll change society forever, the, the immune response of society kicks in and says, hold on, let's pump the brakes here. And I think the biggest reason there's been a huge change in, over the past two to three years in particular mm-hmm. is because the phase two results were published. We actually, for the first time since the 80s, had actual double-blind placebo control prove that this works. That changed a lot of minds, so much so that the VA's cover commission recently, their report that came out in January, their ninth recommendation was that they need to do more research on cannabis and psychedelics. Wow. That's awesome. That's the VA. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> That's so great to, to hear that. And I, we're just over an hour right now. And I'd, I'd love for you to just talk about the capstone challenge for MAPS. Yes. And just what your, not, not your involvement directly with that, but just what is that program and all about that? Because I really just want to re- include links and, and just how we can push as a society to making this happen realistically. I'll give you, there's two really good links. The first one is mdmaptsd.org. If you have PTSD and you want to apply for a trial, that's where you go. Realize we have slowed our recruiting for phase three a little bit because of COVID and we're trying to adjust. That may already have been fixed, but I know that was an issue we were working on. The other is, I'll get you the link to put down there. Uh, If you search maps, Capstone is the 30, we're, we're raising $30 million. 10 million of it was from our board of directors and long-term donors. 10 million came from Tim Ferriss and and his friends who did a $10 million matching grant. We're trying to raise the last 10 million so that we can get that middle 10. And once we have that 30 million, we will have the funding that we need to bring MDMA to market in the United States. And, and, we're actually a nonprofit, so all donations are tax deductible. We're a 501c3. We're, we were the first, I believe there's a second now, nonprofit pharmaceutical company. It's a rarity. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have investors. Um, oh, okay. If you want to invest in MAPS, what you're actually investing in is people like me, um, helping people who are suffering get better. One of the things I like to say is supporting MAPS and investing in MAPS your return on investment is pretty simple. More fathers, less flags. Yeah, that's. <laughs> there's almost nothing to say to that other than thank you, realistically, to just not only hear your story, but to hear how much it's affected your life so much so that you have become a champion for it. Like you said, you're just some guy who served in the military. You said you didn't have a special career per se, but I don't know. Uh, for me, I, I decided to reach out to you and hear your story, at least directly. I felt like there was more there because I thought that at the very least, there was more to the story than what the five minutes that you normally get on standard media. <laughs> <laughs> and if there's any other closing thoughts that maybe we haven't covered or things that have come up in this last hour, and or if not, how can people connect with you? One of the things is my drive every day is pretty simple. And that is, I remember how much it hurt when I was suffering. And I was given a very unique opportunity to heal. 
I know for a fact there's guys I served with in Iraq suffering from PTSD right now. I know there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world suffering. The same way I was. I joined the military to help people and to take those punches for other people. And now I've been healed. I can't just say, I got mine, peace out. That's just not me. And, and, and so that's my drive every day is, is I'm not going to quit until everyone on the planet has access to the same kind of healing that I did because it's a miracle. It really is. As far as getting in touch with me, I'm on Twitter at John Lubecki. You can also get in touch with me uh, if it's for a media inquiry, media at maps.org. If it's for anything else, just ask maps at maps.org. Great. I will keep links of all of that in the show notes as well. So if people want to find it, they can have it there once I have it up on the website. So thank you for your time and for your story. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome to hear more about this and to just see where it's all going because to me it feels like a really exciting time. And like you said, I hope that in the next five years we'd have clinics available to the public that if they felt that they could go do it, they should because why not? We should be always expanding the toolkit, as I like to think as an engineer, is if there's a tool out there that can solve a problem, then we should have access to it. The other thing to remember is, especially as an engineer, my brother-in-law is an engineer, there's different tools for different things, and, and there is no single tool, much as they try to make one tool that does everything, there isn't. This work definitely works for me. It works for, for most people. There is a possibility it may not work. It doesn't work that it doesn't work for some people. And for some people taking a Zoloft a day and that's all you need and you're good to go. Fine. If, if going to church is all you need, fine. We need different tools in the toolkit. What frustrates me is when they say, Oh, this tool works. Well, we're just going to hold it over here and not let anyone use it. Thank Thanks you. for having me on. It's been a blast. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's a, that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Feeding Curiosity. I hope you all learned something or at least got you thinking. If you want to dive in deeper, please head over to feedingcuriosity.net to find related links or just more podcasts and blogs that we posted there. On top of this, please consider subscribing to our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest happenings on the website. Thank you all for joining me one more time and we'll catch you all in the next episode. 